The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That is gracebible.faith. Okay. So last week we finished up our study of ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, and we saw, we talked about the ministry of the church. We talked about the fact that it wasn't limited just to the people that stand up front here on Sunday mornings or to any other select group within the church, but that all believers participate in the ministry of the church. When, when you become a believer and you're converted, you're filled with the Spirit of God, and you're given some sort of spiritual gift. You might be given even a combination of gifts. And you exercise that gift for the edification of others and as a manifestation of the Spirit of God living in you. Each believer is expected to use his or her gift in that way. And this is what Peter's talking about, 1 Peter 4.10. He says, as each one has received a gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So we touched on that last week with the ministry of the church, and I thought it would be a good time for us to follow up with a little more in-depth study on spiritual gifts. And the classic section of Scripture that deals with spiritual gifts is 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. There are some other places. Romans 12 talks about gifts. Ephesians 4 talks about gifted men in particular that are given to the church. But 12 through 14 is the most thorough discussion and the one that we're going to walk through in our second hour study over the next several weeks. This morning we'll introduce and just talk about the letter to the Corinthians in general and we'll eventually do the first three verses. This is the book that I'm drawing much of the material that we'll be talking about from Understanding Spiritual Gifts by Robert Thomas. I think I sent out the link to this to everybody and uh, I would just encourage you to go on Amazon and look at their used copies. If you want to get a new copy, you can, but uh, probably got plenty of used copies on there that you can get one from. It'll really help you to get the book and read it along with our study on Sunday mornings just to fill in more detail. So let's start with looking at the background of the city of Corinth. Uh, David has made the point on a number of occasions how the location of the church impacts the church. That's definitely true with the church at Corinth. The city itself was very strategically located on this little small strip of land, and you can see it there, between the, the Achaia, the area that this was known in Bible times, but you see Athens and Corinth shown on the map there. And because of its location on that little strip, it had both an eastern and a western seaport. And as you can imagine, uh, that developed great wealth for this city. It's a city that we have a lot of information on, an ancient city that we still have a lot of information on today. It was destroyed by the Romans in 146 BC and then rebuilt again 100 years later by Julius Caesar. And under his supervision, the city was quickly regained its former beauty and wealth and was even better than it was before, even larger. It was also home to the Isthmian, Isthmian, I can't say that without a lisp, Isthmian Games, which was very similar to the Olympic Games, second only to the Olympics in their fame, known for its gladiatorial contests. Many in Corinth sought to revive the glory days of the well-known past with their Greek philosophers, and the human, human wisdom and philosophy was very highly valued. 
I give you all this background because it is out of this pool and cultural milieu that the Corinthian church is going to be born. <clears throat> well, as is typical even of cities today, how do cities get large today? And it largely has to do with location, right? You either, if you're a port city or if you're a transportation hub like the city of Atlanta or you have some other strategic location, you grow. You grow over time. And with an increased population, oftentimes there's increased uh, sin and depravity. As you can imagine, in Corinth, there would have been sailors, merchants, refugees that passed through the city, didn't live there full time, and it brought, they brought with them uh, a lot of immorality. It was also a city of gross idolatry. Uh, the, the goddess of the city of Corinth, or the temple that was located there, was to the goddess Aphrodite. And... In Paul's day, it, it just had a reputation for being very immoral. Uh, to, to lead a, a lifestyle, lifestyle like the Corinthians was to live in luxury and licentiousness. And there even was a verb to Corinthianize, which means basically to engage in prostitution. So all these things together, uh, again, is the background from which the, city, the church at Corinth was born. You know, churches have a different character, even Paul's churches. And, and David's taught us about this you know, as we've gone through Philippians. Philippian church was a very strong church. It was a church that was doing well, could always do better. Corinthian church had a lot of problems. They had a lot of gifted people. And when they came together, all those gifted people wanted to exercise their gifts. But that was led to some problems as well. We'll look at that more in a little detail. But I, I want to give you this background to just give you a better understanding of what the church there was like. <clears throat> so let's look a little more at the background of this letter in particular that Paul writes to the Corinthians. He had established the church there on his second missionary journey, and Acts 18 describes his establishing of the church there. Let's read that, starting at verse 1. <clears throat> After these things, he, Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth, he found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So you're already seeing some persecution. Um, and in this case, it wasn't Christian persecution. He was asking the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and that is, Paul came to Aquila and Priscilla and Aquila, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working. For they, by trade, they were tent makers. We know about Paul's uh, vocation as a tent maker. He used it when he needed to, to support himself, and that's what he was doing here, as we will come clear later. Paul was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, and this was his habit, right? Every time he came to a new city, he always went to synagogue first. And he tried to convince the Jews first that Jesus was the Christ. And that was a very reasonable thing for him to do because... If he'd gone to the Gentiles first, the Jews wouldn't even give him an audience. He got in enough trouble as it was for going directly to the Gentiles. But he always went to the Jews first. They were the ones that should have been the most prepared to hear the gospel. But they didn't, oftentimes, didn't receive it. He was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word. Now, what's the implication there? <clears throat> 
What was, was he not completely devoting himself to the word until they came down? Exactly. So he's using tent making to support himself so as not to be a burden to the church at Corinth. And they came down with financial support for him, freed him up to be able to completely devote himself to the word. <clears throat> Solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And when they resisted, that is the Jews, and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I shall go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and went to the house of a certain man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they were hurt, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So now he's going to the Gentiles. He's proclaiming the same gospel message, and many of them are embracing Christ. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. It's pretty incredible. I mean, this was a very pagan city, a city that had a reputation in the Roman Empire for being extremely immoral, and yet God had his people there, and he was calling them out through the gospel. Paul settled there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them now. That was a long time for Paul to stay in one place. The guy was a, a globetrotter. He was all over the Roman Empire. And it was to me, it's fascinating the way that he uh, traveled himself, but also coordinated other guys. You know, he'd send Timothy or Titus to a location and then get a report back from them and then send a letter to that particular location, depending on what the need was. We're going to find out that that was similar to what he did here. 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9 says this. this. Again, this near the end of this first letter that Paul writes to Corinth. I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service is open to me, and there are many adversaries. So we know that he was in Ephesus as he wrote this letter. He wrote it in about 55 AD, and that would have been about five years after he established the church at Corinth. His letter was prompted, again, by a report, uh, a report that he heard after he had left Corinth. What was the nature of that report? Uh, as you think about what 1 Corinthians says, particularly in the first chapter, what was going on there that prompted the letter? David? There were factions. And what was the nature of the factions? What was causing them? Exactly. They, they had loyalties to different people, leaders in the church to be sure, but it was creating tensions within the congregation. And that's what he says in chapter 1, verse 11. I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. So Paul's purpose for this letter was twofold. One was to correct these divisions uh, that he heard about through Chloe. And then a second purpose was to answer a series of questions that had been brought back to him from this threesome, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. This is what 1 Corinthians 16, 17 says, And I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking 
on your part. So they had been to Corinth, they brought him this report back, and it included a series of questions that he answers uh, from chapter 7 through 16. So let's look now at a broad outline of the letter itself. First is to answer the report of divisions, and he does that in chapters 1 through 4. He deals with these factions that David mentioned that had developed over loyalty to different church leaders. And here's what it says in verses 12 through 13, right after the verse that I just read. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, you know, the New Testament certainly uh, teaches us to be subject to the leaders in the church body, and they had a responsibility to do that as well. But their ultimate loyalty, just as all of our ultimate loyalty, is to Christ. And they needed to understand that. They needed to, they really needed kind of the same instruction that the Philippians did, and being of the same mind, same purpose, it being unified in that way. But Paul deals with that in the first four chapters of the letter. Chapters 5 through 6, we're not going to read a portion of those, but you'll recall the story and the, the issues he's dealing with there. He's addressing a moral delinquency in the church, even a, a, a case of incest. He talked about it as being immorality that not even the Gentiles do this, and you're allowing it in your local church body. He also deals with the fact that these Christians were taking one another to court in chapter 6. Paul concludes this section with a warning against immorality in general. Then he gets to these questions that have come to him, and he wants to answer them in chapters 7 through 16. And these include questions on marriage. In chapter 7, you can imagine how that would have been an issue for them because they've come out of this lifestyle where they've had all this immorality that was very much even part of their religious worship system. And, and now they're wondering, well, is it better to be married or not to be married? And are there legitimate grounds for divorce? What if my spouse, uh, what if I have come to faith in, my, in Christ and embrace the gospel, become a believer, my spouse hasn't? Should I separate from them? Those are the kinds of things he's dealing with in chapter 7. In 8 through 11, he deals with food offered to idols, which, again, would have been very prevalent in the city of Corinth. And if you bought food in the market, you don't know for sure if it had been offered to idols or not. And one of Paul's uh, solutions for that is don't ask questions. Just accept it. You know, eat it. And, and if you go to somebody's house and you want to partake of the meal with them, don't ask questions for your own conscience sake. On the other hand, and it's kind of a nuanced discussion, if you go to somebody's house and they tell you that the food has been offered to idols, you shouldn't eat it for the sake of a weaker Christian brother that might be there and see you do that, and, and that lead him into sin. He deals with matters of public worship, particularly with women wearing head coverings in chapter 11, and then the way that they were conducting the Lord's Supper together. They weren't doing it right. Uh, they were eating their own food, not allowing some that were poor or came later to the feast to participate. So he provides correction for that. Now we get to the part that we're going to be looking at in chapters 12 through 14, and it begins with this statement now concerning the spirituals, literally, spiritual gifts, as it becomes clear in the context. And then after that, after 12 through 14, these are very clearly delineated sections in the latter part of the letter. 
He talks about the resurrection in chapter 15 and the collection for the saints in Jerusalem in 16. Evidently, the Corinthians had started to make that collection, hadn't finished it, and he has to motivate them a little bit to finish that up. <clears throat> so we want to look at just the first three verses this morning of 1 Corinthians 12. He's going <clears> to, <throat> and I'm going to, the very last thing I'm going to do this morning is kind of read backward from what Paul's approach is here in these chapters. Uh, he's going to deal with more directly with the questions they have, but the thing he starts out doing is making sure they have a right understanding of where genuine spiritual gifts come from in the first place. And that's what he's going to do in the first three verses. So the way we're going to do this is a little different from what we've done before. I'm just going to read one verse, comment, next verse, comment, the last verse, comment. So he opens up by saying, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. Now, again, David has talked about, and you see a lot of similarity. The more you read Paul's letters, the more you read the New Testament, you see his similarity approach across these different letters. But he addresses them here as brethren. He wants them to know that he cares about them, uh, that they, he does consider them brothers and sisters in Christ. But he does that to kind of prepare the way for some rebuke. He's going to have to correct them on some things. He wants them first to know of his love for them. So he will have strong words of rebuke to follow, but he addresses them with this affectionate term, and he uses different terms in different places, but here he just calls them brethren, assuring them of his love. And he, uh, they've not had instruction before on these spiritual gifts, and they desperately need some because they're doing some things and thinking that they're doing what's right and it's very much not right. Verse 2, you know that when you were pagans, when you were unbelievers, you were led astray to the dumb idols, however you were led. That seems like a strange thing to say at this point in this letter. What's he mean? What's he talking about? What would the, when he says dumb idols, is he talking about their intelligence or something else? Exactly. He talks a lot about that even in 8 through 10. And he talks about the fact that, you know, an idol really is nothing by itself. So you can eat food offered to the, an idol, and it's no big deal because an idol is not, not a true god in the first place. On the other hand, what stands behind idolatry? Satan. The doctrine of demons. And they use idolatry to influence people. And he's just mentioning the fact here that because so many of these people came out of such a pagan background, an idolatrous background, that they know what it was like to be led by forces that were external to themselves. And that's the essence of what verse 2 is talking about. Such idol worship subjected them to the power and control of demons who stood behind the dove idol. Uh, as I said, we see that connection that Paul's made earlier in his letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice, he doesn't say ultimately, but ultimately it is to demons 
and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So that's they had partaken of the table of demons in the past when they had made these sacrifices. And what we're going to see is they had brought some of that over into their Christian worship. Some aspects of this demonic control before had evidently carried over to the Christian assembly, causing the Corinthians to confuse demonic leading with the Holy Spirit's leading. And I think it will become more clear as we get to verse 3. All right, Verse 3, Therefore I make known to you, and again the therefore, as David pointed out this morning, looks backward in light of what I've just said, in light of the fact that I don't want you to be ignorant about genuine spiritual gifts, I'm going to give you kind of a test of orthodoxy. I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. And no one, on the other hand, can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. So in order to clear up this confusion, Paul offers a test of distinguishing genuine spirits of God or genuine gifts of God that are given by the Holy Spirit. It's a better way to say that. The test is twofold with both a negative and a positive aspect, right? The first one is negative. No one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. Now, the implication of that statement is that evidently somebody was saying that, and it was even being given approval within the Corinthian assembly. Now, the question comes then, how could someone say such a thing? In order to gain a better understanding of how that could happen in this context, we need to ask and answer several questions. First, what person could make such a statement? What would be their own spiritual condition? Okay. Is it possible that they don't have the Spirit of God and yet still be a professing Christian? Is it likely in this case? I would say yes, because Paul's having to address it. This was something that was happening within the Christian assembly. There would have been no attempt to uh, attribute this statement to the Holy Spirit if it wasn't coming from at least a professing Christian. I'm not saying they were Christian, but they professed to be. This person was probably a Gentile based on the statement in verse 2. Secondly, where was the statement made? And again, we can't answer these dogmatically. We don't have enough information. But where was it likely that this was being proclaimed? In the church, in the assembly of the church. Because, one, Paul's having to address it. Two, These matters that run basically from chapter 11 through 14 are all within the Christian assembly. Third question. What was the condition of the person at the time of his statement? That's a very broad question. How would the person have made this statement? Not necessarily leadership. It's possible. But I'm trying to give you a hint without giving it away. Not in the power 
Okay, not in the power of the Holy Spirit to be sure, but if that was the case, wouldn't people just recognize that? Yes. So now we're getting closer to the mark. I think they probably said it with great enthusiasm in the same way that oftentimes experientially, experientially and you know, charismatic theology does this a lot today, right? I mean, you, you hear about all these wild things that happen with things like the vineyard movement or people being slain in the spirit and you know, people suddenly just bursting out in this language that they've never, well, it's completely unintelligible most of the time today. But they do it with a lot of enthusiasm. And people, because they do it with a lot of enthusiasm, think, well, something's happening there. It must be supernatural. Perhaps the best explanation is that the person was in some sort of static state or prophesying, like Denise said, with great excitement. When such a person was beside himself with excitement, some accepted this, the person's excitement, as evidence that he was speaking by the Spirit of God. It's not a good thing to do that, but you have to come up with some explanation of how they could say such a thing and it be accepted and even approved by the congregation. What is the nature of this declaration by Jesus? And again, that's a tough question. I'm going to go ahead and answer that one for you. The word anathema indicates the presence of a Jewish influence. It's a word that comes from the Old Testament. It's a translation of a Hebrew term that designates something that was devoted to God for its destruction. Can you think of a place in the Old Testament that speaks about uh, something being cursed? This is the way a lot of our English translations would say it. And, and especially something that would apply to Jesus. I mean, that's the statement, right? Jesus is accursed. Can you think of an Old Testament reference that might support that, Jen? Exactly. And that, but that's the first thing I thought about when you said that Jesus is accursed because he didn't hang on a tree. That's right. And there is a sense in which that's true, right? I mean, he, was, he bore our curse for us, and God poured out his wrath on him. But it's not the kind of thing that needs to be proclaimed in the Christian assembly in the way that was happening here. So again, it was probably made against the background of Deuteronomy 21:23. He who is hanged upon the tree is accursed of God. We've already seen that there were followers of different Jewish leaders in the Corinthian assembly, right? Some people talked about being of Paul, some of Peter. Later in his second letter, Paul has to address the fact that there were people that were claiming to be apostles that were false apostles. And remember, he's making his argument, 2 Corinthians is all about Paul defending his own ministry. He's making the argument, you know, are they Hebrews? So am I. And he's really comparing himself to them and showing how he's even greater than they are. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. So there were these kinds of people within the Corinthian assembly that one of them could have made such a statement and had that kind of Jewish background. Why would such a statement be tolerated and even approved by some who heard it? Perhaps another angle of the explanation would be these are the earliest seeds of Gnosticism. Gnosticism is something that's going to get more full-blown by the end of the first century and something that Paul is dealing, I'm sorry, that John is dealing with in his letters. But Gnostic teaching made a clear distinction between 
the historical Jesus as a man and the Christ as the Son of God. So they would say that the Spirit of God, you know, came upon Jesus at his baptism, which we would affirm, but it left him right before he was crucified so that he died as a normal man. That's completely uh, heretical teaching. Jesus was divine. He was God in the flesh. And it's true that the Spirit of God came upon him at his crucifixion, I mean, at his baptism, but he remained deity all the way through. But that's how they could say Jesus is accursed, again, with that background from Deuteronomy and seeing him not correctly understanding his deity. So that's the negative side of the test. Let's look at the positive side now. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, according to verse 3. Now, we're not talking about just mouthing the words here. We're talking about a genuine conversion. And that was the confession that was made, right? We looked at it this morning, Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you should be saved. It's a confession of recognizing the deity of Christ on the one hand, but also professing loyalty to him as your Lord, as your master. You know, all of us, before we become believers, are slaves to sin. That sin is our master. But after we become a believer, Jesus is our Lord. The Greek word for Lord, kurios, is the regular New Testament means of translating the word Yahweh, the name of God. It's also the way that the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translates Yahweh. So for them, as they heard Jesus as Lord, it was clear that they were confessing the deity of Jesus, the person. And you can't do that apart from the Holy Spirit. So what he, again, is doing is trying to help them make a clear distinction between genuine spiritual gifts and counterfeits. And that's a lot of what he's going to deal with in 12 through 14. Uh, Andre and I were talking about this before the service this morning, the fact that this is Satan's modus operandi from the Garden of Eden forward. I mean, he's always trying to counterfeit the truth. It's not always blatant about that, just as he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. You know, he said, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from this tree? And that's what he's trying to do here. He's taking a legitimate spiritual gift, particularly speaking in tongues, and that's going to be one of the dominant things that Paul deals with in 12 through 14, and he's counterfeiting it by bringing in this idolatrous background into the assembly. The spirit-prompted confession of Jesus as Lord distinguishes the true spiritual gift from the counterfeit. Um, the twofold test then is primar primarily a theological one. It's a right understanding of the person and work of Christ. So, you know, we don't have a copy of the letter that the Corinthians wrote to Paul. We can kind of read between the lines and read backward from his answers to understand what the letter was what was in the letter, and I want to try to reconstruct, and I'm taking this again from Thomas's book, what that question would have looked like as Paul's addressing particularly the area of spiritual gifts. Based on the answers, perhaps the Corinthians' question concerning spiritual gifts went something like this. You know, Paul, we have many gifted people in our church, and they all desire to contribute to every service. 
This is particularly true of those who have the gift of tongues. And this creates great confusion whenever we meet together. How, how is it creating confusion? Based on what you know already of 12 through 14. Lots of confusion because people weren't being orderly. They were speaking all over each other. And again, I would argue there's a lot of charismatic assemblies that do that. Not all of them, but the ones that are televised and the ones of these leaders that you hear about that lead these kind of uh, charismatic get-togethers, big ones. Uh, a lot of this is going on. You know, you got people falling out all over the stage. You got people. They have what they call a laughing revival where people were just laughing uncontrollably. It was a lot of confusion. And Paul says, that's not the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God doesn't operate that way. But the Corinthians would say, you know, what advice can you give us on these things? And Paul's reply first, and this is what we looked at this morning, is to give the Corinthians a very broad understanding of the whole area of spiritual gifts and how to distinguish the true, the genuine from the counterfeit. And then to move from that to the more specific issue of tongues and from that to the idea of, look, within the church, it's better to what than to speak in tongues? To prophesy. To prophesy in a language that can be understood by everybody and be edified. I believe that tongues was primarily a gift to unbelievers. Paul says this much, right? It was, I, not to unbelievers, but for evangelizing unbelievers. And you can imagine, to have the ability to go to different parts of the Roman Empire and to speak to people that didn't necessarily know Greek and to be able to proclaim the mighty acts of God in their own language was a great tool for evangelism. But within the church, it's better to prophesy, that is, to speak in the language of the people and to speak revelation from God. So he stopped short of actually forbidding the use of tongues in church, but he says, what? If you're going to speak in tongues, what do you have to do? You have to interpret, and that's another spiritual gift, right? The gift of tongues is not some heavenly language that nobody's ever heard of before. It's a human language. The supernatural nature of the gift is the fact that you were able to speak that language without ever having studied it. Similarly, the gift of interpretation would be that you can translate that language into the language of the audience without ever having studied it as well. There were two gifts that were very necessary if you were going to speak in tongues in the church. That's a good question. Otherwise, it seems a lot like what happens now. Yes. Yes. So, I mean, you could, and this could be part of the counterfeit, right, is you could have somebody stand up and speak in a language that nobody else in the audience knew. Somebody else that stands up and speaks and interprets, you don't know if they're saying the right thing or not. It's kind of like having an interpreter in a context today that's interpreting, if I went somewhere to teach, I don't know if they're speaking correctly and translating correctly what I said or not. I've heard stories of them saying things that I didn't say. So I don't know that you would necessarily have to have a person there, but you would have to at least have confidence 
that the person that was doing the translating had that gift, uh, you would have to say, too, I think that the message that they were proclaiming through the interpretation lined up with what they knew to be true from Paul. Uh, it would certainly be an area where you could still have counterfeit if you, you know. Well, why do we need to say something in a language no one understands and then have somebody interpret it to what everybody can understand or you could just preach it? So I think that's in essence Paul's argument. But he doesn't, he seems to me he, he stops short of completely forbidding it. And as long as you have somebody who translates, the church can receive some edification for it. Now it would be, it seems to me it would be similar to us proclaiming a gospel message here. Most of the people here are believers. They've heard the gospel. They know the gospel. Uh, it'll be better to teach something maybe that people aren't as familiar with. But I, I think he's very careful on the one hand not to squash people who have the gift of tongues. He said he spoke in tongues more than any of them. And again, I think that came in really handy for the way that he evangelized all over the Roman Empire. But he also says, and this is a, a, a tough question for me, if you don't have somebody there to interpret, you just stay silent. And it's almost as if, well, why would you prompt somebody to speak in tongues if they're supposed to suppress it, you know, if it's a genuine spirit of God? And he gets into that point of how, you know, tongues can be an edification for the individual and, and not necessarily for the audience unless you have interpretation. I know I'm going around the world to answer your question, but um, I just think... The main point of what he says is prophecy is to be preferred over tongues. If you're going to speak in tongues, you have to do it in an orderly manner, and you have to make sure that somebody uh, interprets in order for the church to receive edification. He does that. He says that over and over again because that is the purpose of spiritual gifts. Perhaps speaking like that, if you're saying gibberish would be to bring importance to themselves and, and honor to themselves, and maybe they can create their own faction and their own Yeah. Yeah. You definitely that would definitely be a possibility. And again, I think that's kind of what happens today in the charismatic movement is one, you know, they would claim to be speaking a heavenly language that there is no English equivalent to, or they say, well, I don't do it in the church. I do it in my prayers. And I, it's a language that I don't even understand, but I'm praying back to God through this mysterious language of tongues. And Paul's going to speak to those things in this letter, and we'll eventually work through them. But that's not what the gift of tongues is in the New Testament. It is known human languages. Uh, it's just not known by the person who has this supernatural ability to... Was this going on, Clark? Yes. The gibberish was going on? Something was, yes. I mean, there, Yes. That. Yes. I mean, or it, so the interpretation wouldn't be quite as big a deal about a known language. Well, <clears throat> yeah. I don't know that he addresses that issue specifically. It makes sense that you might have somebody in there that um, knew a particular language and, and it wasn't the language, but more often it wasn't the language of the rest of the congregation. Uh, that's an interesting point because, you know, today, Everybody that comes here understands English, and I, there's kind of a presumption that 
as you come into the assembly, you're going to be able to understand the language that's being spoken. This was in a city that was thoroughly Hellenized, and they could speak in Greek, and most everybody there would be able to understand it. So to me, that's another argument for why Paul would have this gift of tongues, as would others, to be able to go into regions where Greek wasn't spoken and to be able to evangelize and maybe even speak in assembly in one of those places and be able to edify that group of people. The main thing that he's doing here is trying to get them to settle down their assembly so that they're not having this wild confusion of people speaking all over each other and, and edification not taking place. It doesn't do any good, and this is a big part of his argument. We'll see all this as we work through 12 through 14. You know, if you have uh, sounds going out into the air and you can't understand what's being said, that person will be like a barbarian to me and I'll be a barbarian to them. We can't communicate. He uses several illustrations to make that point. So I, I hope that some of this will clear up as we go through the rest of the text. But it does seem like that they were having trouble with people speaking in tongues. It wasn't being translated. There wasn't being edification. And that's what he's trying to correct. And I, again, it's easy to see because of the idolatrous practices out of which they came, they would have done that same kind of thing in that setting as well, especially this state of ecstasy that they would have been in. Uh, they would have been something they were familiar with from their past. Okay, so next week uh, we'll look at verses 4 through 11. Again, if you, I encourage you to get the book if you haven't already. Uh, we just covered the very early, the first introductory section today. Uh, but we'll look at 4 through 11 next week. And if you would, just read through those verses, whether you get the book or not. All right, let's have a word of prayer. We'll be dismissed. <clears throat> Father, we praise you that you are God, not of confusion, but of peace, that you've established a standard by which we can communicate with each other through language that's understood on both sides. And we thank you that you've given us the revelation of your word uh, in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek originally, but translated for our edification and translated into languages all over the world. Uh, we recognize that this is the means by which people come to know the gospel and built up in the truth and not by uh, a wild, ununderstandable, unintelligible proclamation. Thank you for the opportunity that we have each week to come and, and hear your word taught and to be built up that way. I pray that as we continue to walk through our study of the spiritual gifts that we would understand each of us that you've given us gifts and we're to exercise those in service and love towards others and so mutually build up one another that way. Thank you again for this time of year. Uh, when we especially reflect on the birth of Christ and all that that means for us. And I pray that as we go to our different places this week, that you would help us to walk in a manner that's worthy of our calling as believers and in a, man in a manner that gives glory to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.